This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. There's a saying that people don't leave companies, they leave managers. Management is a key part of any organization, yet the discipline is often self-taught and unstructured. Management can make the difference between fulfillment and frustration for teams, and ultimately the success or failure of companies. Will Larson's An Elegant Puzzle tackles the challenges of engineering management, from sizing teams to technical debt, all the way to succession planning. Drawing from his experience at Dig, Uber, and Stripe, Will Larson has developed a thoughtful approach to engineering management that leaders of all levels at companies of all sizes can apply. An elegant puzzle balances structured principles and human-centric thinking to help any leader create more effective and rewarding organizations for engineers to thrive in. In this episode, Ledge sits down with the author to discuss key lessons from the book. Will, it is great to have you on today. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited for it as well. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So because you can do it better than me, uh, if you don't mind, give a little introduction of yourself and your work, because it's going to be exciting to talk about your current project. Yeah, awesome. So I um, am the head of foundation engineering at Stripe. Um, Stripe's increasing the GDP of the internet, um, making it easy for folks to get online and run their businesses online and scale them. Um, and foundation engineering is basically um, data engineering, infrastructure engineering, internal and external um, developer tools, really just like an awesome kind of uh, set of different problems that are like some of the most interesting ones, in my opinion, uh, that, that folks get to work on. Um, and also um, just came out with a book, uh, An Elegant Puzzle. Um, and so I've, I've definitely never written a book before, although my sister has. So I'm sort of excited to join uh, my, my sister in the, the published authors category. Um, lifelong dream. You guys can share uh, your authorship around the Thanksgiving table now and stuff. So, so I, Stripe Press published the book and it uh, was cool enough to send me an advanced copy. And um, props to them for, you know, personal note on the little bookmark that came in it. That was that was super pro. You know, it was really neat to do that. So that that's amazing that you have that support from, from the company. And I, I got to dive into the book a little bit being a, an organization and, and management and leadership kind of nerd, uh, particularly around engineering topics. Everybody who listens to the podcast will know that. So yeah, man, you know, I, I was really struck by like, you have created, uh, I, I'm just like a playbook of, you know, just some really awesome tactical stuff. You know, I really, I have the sense that someone could pick this book up and start to implement from page one. And that's, that's hard to pull off, particularly in the the management press, where did all this come from? I think, um, you know, when, when you pick up a lot of management books, like there, there's a lot of great management books out there. Um, and, and, you know, like even some of the older ones, like the first 90 days and, and these are really good, but they, they tend to focus on kind of fundamentals. Like how do you do one-on-ones? Like what's the, how do you kind of manage your, your manager? How do you like kind of do kind of these core career planning, et cetera. Um, but what I really wanted to like share is like also on your manager, there's like just a huge number of decisions you have to make. And these decisions like really matter. Like they, these are decisions that figure out you know, who will lead these important projects. Um, will your company have money next year to pay people? Um, like, you know, really the, the quality of decision making that you make as a manager um, and as a leader is just like so influential on your, yourself, but also like these teams you're responsible for supporting 
um, and the, the company as well. And we don't really talk about how to make those decisions and how to think about them. And so really, to me, I just want to talk through, you know, like dozens of different problems I've gotten to encounter in my career working on kind of fast growing companies like Stripe, fast growing companies like Uber, but also companies that, that were maybe fast growing in a different way, like people um, getting laid off or, or leaving. And kind of like, how, how do you think through some of these problems in a structured way to kind of do the right thing by your team um, and, and the company? And so much of that came from your experience. So, I, you know, I read that, I believe this is true, that, you know, a lot of this is derived from, you have been a disciplined blogger for what, 12 years and actually written down all your stuff. It's the kind of thing that I think all of us wish, you know, like, wow, I really wish that I kept that log of all those things that I did. And and you actually did it. So that speaks volume for your uh, discipline, you know, that's for sure. So, you know, but it, it makes me think that like you had this managerial memoir of, of so much stuff. And if I were to do that, I would imagine I have not done that, not had that discipline, but if I was to do it and I look back 12 years ago to the way that I thought about a given problem contextualized, based on no experience, uh, based on, you know, the opinions and variables that I had at the time, it would be a very different experience for a similar problem today. And so I wonder how, like, what kind of arguments did you have with like, you know, rookie will while you made mature will management book? I think that, that that's a really powerful question. I think sometimes when you look at your advice, you like gave earlier in a career, you kind of look at it and you realize the advice is still good, but maybe you're a different member of the situation than you thought you were. Like you thought you were like the really thoughtful person uh, rallying against the system. And in retrospect, you were kind of the person who was like thoughtlessly uh, like ignoring the, re- the constraints and the needs around you. And you're like, you're like recasting from the hero to the villain a little bit. With Did this, you like, read my bio the- before this? Or <laughs> just, just <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Uh, no, but um, if you, if you can't look back at like, what you've done 10 years ago and be like, wow, like I actually didn't approach that in a particularly effective or thoughtful way. Then like probably you're not learning that much, right? Like this is, um, if, if you don't have like some regret, then, then you're, you're probably not growing at the rate that, that you could be. Yeah. Yeah. My, my own experience of experience, you know, if we get meta is that, you know, it becomes less about maybe wisdom that it becomes about, you know, sort of neuroplasticity and recognizing the same patterns over and over again. And that they're just, you know, there aren't maybe that many fundamental patterns of what people and orgs do together. And, um, you know, that you can pay attention to that and start to predict the future, but you don't really know why, you know, but you can kind of say, I've seen this, it's likely to behave in some way. It's the same, like when you cross the street, you know, you kind of know how far, which car can I run in front of or not? And, and I, I have trouble articulating it better than that. And you really have done a good job breaking out specific circumstances. Um, what are the ones that stand out the most to you? I mean, you had to form a book and a narrative and an outline, and, and I know that's a lot of work. Um, which things in there are the most resonant? Just like one quick thought about what you just said. Um, the, the, to me, the best way to learn is like writing things down. And just this act of like writing down over and over is to me... It's one thing to kind of observe something and it's another thing if you actually write it down and try to learn from it um, or just try to articulate it in a way where someone else can read it and doesn't send you like a, a mean like Twitter DM afterwards saying your writing was terrible or something. Well, you're going to get that anyway, but you know how that goes. So. 
it is it is the internet. Um, it's hard it's hard to get away from it, but uh, rare, rare, rarely happens, and, and usually always deserved when it does. Um, could always be clearer um, in, in the writing. Um, man, the things that really resonate as like recurring themes for me is that um, you know just this idea of like reality based decision making is one that like I really come back to. I, I think a lot of times. It's, it's so hard or inconvenient to recognize the reality of situations that people like make plans they know don't make sense because it's easier than having like these difficult conversations. And I, I really find that if you actually have the information um, and you're willing to confront reality, coming up with a good plan that resonates with people is not that hard. But if you're not, if you're not in the, and really that's like much of what the book is like talking about hyper growth, like one of the, a, a good reality people don't like is if you hire too quickly, you slow down. Um, if you start hiring quickly, the most important factor um, is your, the quality of your training. And if you skip on that, you slow down and it's better not to be hiring so quickly. And there's like all these pieces where like, once you start like modeling out the systems, there is a reality, but it's like potentially a reality that it's like not okay to like acknowledge is there. And so, like having the um, the the patience um, to surface that reality in a way where people can hear it and don't view you as like a uh, kind of dissenter to that that is just trying to tear things down. Like finding a way to be constructive and positive, and also surface the reality so you can build a plan that addresses it. Man, that's like the superpower that that comes up again and again. It's, it's also like quite quite hard to do well. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think that we, I mean, there's a lot of work about this, right? That we sort of evangelize growth for the sake of growth, because you want to end up on the end of the growth curve and you want to say, you know, up and to the right and, you know, exponential and and all these things. And um, that's not easy. And the, the human input to that really makes for a lot of work, you know, and, and that management is not the accidental collection of, of human problems. You know, it's, um, it takes a lot of, of input to do that. So you end up in these situations where you get like team upon team upon team upon team. And I, I, I can read your book and kind of go, I don't know how I would address a lot of those things. Having been, you know, a startup guy where, you know, to me, a big, a big team is 20, 30 people. And, and I'm happy like that. And uh, to think of tens of thousands of, and you know, thousands of people in an operation where you couldn't possibly know all of them, and you're trying to articulate the average of what those people think and will behave in a group. How does that not blow your brain up? You know, <laughs> like how did you take that apart and, and abstract that enough? I think. Um... You know, one of the things I love about Stripe is just how intentional and thoughtful we are in our decision making. And I think that um, a lot of the best thinking in this book has really been things that I've learned here around kind of how do we systematize. To your point, um, there's a certain point when trying to actually account for all of the individuals involved um, in the the total planning and the total org structuring, just that the number of kind of constraints is so high that it's I think impossible. I think the the kind of the best metaphor for um, 
or example of like how complicated uh, management gets sometimes is actually seat planning. So like if you think about like trying to like figure out who's going to sit where, this is like kind of nominally like doesn't seem like a very important problem. But actually, like everyone has like really complicated constraints. Um, and as you start kind of balancing them all out, it's like actually not solvable. So then you're like, okay, whose constraints do I prioritize? And you're like, is that fair? And you're like, well, probably not fair to just prioritize the people who are um, the, the most upset about their seat. Like that's like obviously not like the, the just thing to do. Um, but then do you prioritize people who aren't upset? Like it's, do you prioritize people who have like kind of legitimate needs or what about efficiency? If people sit next to the people they, they like, they work closely with on a daily basis, like that's more efficient. Aren't we here to be productive? And so like, how do you, how do you do these things is, but you definitely have to be careful. I think to actually in that situation, design an approach and then implement it. Um, not kind of, I think, try to like reverse engineer from what everyone wants. Like there's certain scale where individuals desires, um, if you factor them in, they, they actually kind of compromise other individuals, unstated desires. And so actually what I found is just being really systematic about designing approach that acknowledges like the constraints and then implementing it and being careful. Um, you know, if, if you study, like if you, <laughs> take like an intro class to philosophy, there's this idea of like positive and negative freedoms. And there's like the freedom to do something and the freedom from something. And I think really, as you start looking at um, not just ensuring the freedoms of people who are vocal about their needs, but also ensuring the freedoms of people who are not vocal, but the freedom from having their potential to have a, a window seat taken away or, or something. Um, even in this kind of contrived example of seating, which like nonetheless, like people really get filled with feelings about seating, right? Um, you start to see like an interesting microcosm, micro, uh, interesting microcosm of, of how to do kind of fair, just management, balancing all these different folks and, and kind of the, the constraints of like, maybe there's only a couple window seats to begin with, right? Fair, maybe there's fair and just in management, you know, like that is not a set of terms that you find in a lot of the literature, right? You know, management is about efficiency, productivity and systems and documentation. And, you know, I, I mean, and I, I actually just, you know, I completely agree with you, right? I mean, that the human stuff is what makes that difficult. We are not pushing around cogs and sticks and boxes. I think um, so, so people have, people have like so much energy they have they to bring to, to, to work each day. And, you know, if, if you have like a system that they trust that behaves in predictable ways um, and consistently behaves in those predictable ways, they'll spend a lot less energy um, fighting that or kind of looking for injustices. Um, and instead, they'll like spend their energy on kind of things that I think are, are like more valuable, like the, the project work, um, etc. But if you so so one of the, the chapters I talk about um work the policy, not the exceptions. And like kind of generally speaking, there's like two different strategies for like dealing with like the person who wants the window seat. Um, and, and one is to be like, well, like I, I'm sort of tired of arguing about this. Like I'm just going to give um, this person what they're asking because it, it's just been like really frustrating to deal with them. And I call that like working the exceptions because you basically try to massage these kind of frustrating components um, but then I, I think this is like a failure to adjust or to recognize kind of the the negative freedoms of, of the other folks involved. And so I, I really try to take this approach of how do I take this feedback, which is that window seats are like, pres like uh, prestigious or 
perceived as prestigious, even though the sun's coming in and bouncing off your monitor, and they're actually worse anyway, but um, uh, and, and kind of work it into the policy in a way where we can then apply it, where people who don't get rewarded for advocating a lot, and instead people feel that even if they don't spend all their time advocating for themselves, the system's going to do right by them. And that's like, seating's like, who cares about seating? That's just like, that's the small stuff, but like getting the important projects that are going to get you promoted, actually getting promoted, um, compensation, recognition, like all those like really core things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and you're, you know, a centimeter away from jumping into, you know, diversity, inclusion, you know, all the major topics that, you know, are just so important now and and that people across, certainly across our tech industry, but I think get everywhere are just grappling with this, you know, idea of, hey, we need to be inclusive and maybe sometimes trying to be inclusive without really even thinking about what does inclusive mean in our context inclusive inclusive of what <laughs> you know and how and how do we behave inclusively those are all those things that that you're talking about and another thing you know to think about with the, your analogy is you know it maybe somebody wants to sit by the window cuz there's nobody behind them and then nobody can look at their screen you know, and I think that there are these hidden motivations of maybe it's privacy, maybe it's um, fear or, you know, like, how do you dig into all that? Because um, you can't get feedback from somebody who doesn't trust you in the first place. And, and to your point, like there, even in this like seemingly simple example, there's also people who uh, have been made to feel uncomfortable around peers they work with and they don't want to sit near that person. And how do you factor in something like that, which can be incredibly uncomfortable for them to raise but might be like the hidden factor behind the window seat might actually be motivated by trying to get out of a situation where they feel like uncomfortable but it's difficult to even talk about yeah yeah absolutely so yeah talk about the the whole you know inclusion stuff and you know just diversity and culture and like how that fits into i understand what you're saying about the creating creating systems and structures that can be universally trusted feels like a foundational element. What do you build on top of that to start to really impact culture? So I I think um, when we talk about inclusion and diversity, and and I think, as you said, this is something that is getting more and more kind of thought about. Um, But I, I think the really exciting thing is I think we're starting to see less kind of general, um, um, you know, this is a good thing, like kind of like a grandmother's and apple pie thinking, like we want more of it because it's good and more. Um, and then there's like a kind of a second phase that I think many people, um, many companies are still in, which is that this is, we want more, but this is like a structural problem. So there's really nothing we can do. Um, and kind of like, I wish we could help, but we, it's just too big for us. It's really like something we have to solve at like the kind of elementary education on up. Um, and then I think we're getting to this uh, maybe third phase, which is like we're actually starting to talk about like things you can do as a manager um, that really change the experience of the folks on your team and don't don't distance the problem. Um, don't say it's like not possible for me, but actually like, things you can do. And, and two that I really are the core of me, uh, though rather the core of like how I see um, successful inclusive teams are kind of two different ideas. And I think there's membership. Um, and then access to opportunity. So when we think about membership, um, how do you actually interact with folks where you feel seen, where you feel included? 
Um, it, there's lots of problems that you, you know, some folks have in like middle school or high school, um, which you don't think exist in the workplace. And so one of them is like, um, you know, having a hard time finding someone to eat lunch with every day. But this is like actually a real thing that does happen to a lot of folks in the workplace, right? And I think early on in your management, you, it can be easy to be like, well, like I, that doesn't seem like something I should be working on, like finding you someone to eat lunch with. And and I don't think you should be like literally scheduling something's lunch, but it, it is like, how do you make sure you have kind of systems where people can meet people across the company? And so something a lot of companies do is like having Slack bots that automatically kind of randomly select people to have pairings to go like eat lunch together. Yeah, uh, it, it's great. It, it's real. Um, like how do you how do you meet people in different functions at a sufficiently large company, right? How do you break out of your like your yeah. local team? Um, and so, the- well, you know what strikes me too is like how do you create uh, a culture that's even receptive to automating good behaviors? You know, like that, that immediately speaks to me of like, that could be the kind of thing where you would roll your eyes and be like, this is total crap and nobody cares about it. Or you could say, I trust my company so much that I know if they implemented something of that nature, that it's actually going to be effective. So, so I do want to come back to a uh, kind of getting access to critical work in a second, but just like to, to kind of talk a little bit, to riff a little bit, a little bit about what you just said. Um, so much of people's values come from modeling uh, the people who are perceived to be like high status, right? And so if you look at um, if you look at the CEO or the head of engineering or the, the head of product or whatever, if they're, you know, consistently meeting other folks, um, you're going to do it. And, and you're, it's, it's very hard to be like, this is this is kind of bogus um, when you see these like kind of perceived like um, authoritative folks modeling those behaviors. And this is why, you know, they say like a lot of leadership is showing up. Um, but but it's it's totally true. Um, it is showing up. Um, it's going to the ERGs and then listening while you're there. Um, it's it's like having lunch with folks that you haven't interacted with before. It's like showing up is seems simple when you have a lot of time, but once you get really busy, it turns out showing up is like a, a real reflection of your your values and, and what matters to you. Yeah, absolutely. I probably interrupted some other great thought there, but. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. You know, it, and it's the kind of thing where like, as, as you have increasing demands on your leadership or management time, that it's the easiest thing to let go, which has a nice analog. And you talked about organization and fast growth. What's the easiest thing to kill off is training, onboarding, you know, soft skills, uh, making sure people feel welcome, right? You know, you can quickly kind of forget to assign value to those important, maybe yet not urgent things until the train runs you over. I think, um, you know, we, sometimes that work is referred to as like second shift work. And there's like the, the, the very legitimate concern that in many situations that work is not surfaced in kind of performance reviews, um, promotions or, or whatnot. Um, We've done a lot, a lot of like I think really neat kind of experiments around that. For example, um, actually creating data around it and pulling into like templates around the performance reviews where that data is just like present. And then when we're doing like a calibration to kind of like figure out the correct leveling for folks, we'll have the second shift data will be presented. It will be like there, or it's it's like not possible to forget about it. 
Um, but but also like just you know making sure for every like career ladder you actually have explicit goals around this sort of work. And, and you know like ultimately like, avoiding phrases like second shift um, is I think important as well. Like it, I think um, there this is this is actually the fundamental like stuff of leadership. Um, it's not second shift. It's like core. And if we're not doing it, it's not that we're not doing extra work. It's that we're not doing our core work and really making sure that's clear. Yeah. And it's, it's the absolute hardest stuff to tie a metric or a number or any kind of, um, quantitative feedback is, is difficult there. You end up having to say, you know, rank this person on how nice they are if you're not careful. Right. And so, you know, that I, probably do an entire episode about just how to measure the stuff that actually matters and not just measure the stuff that, um, you know, is, is readily available to you. I, I actually, I, I have found if you try to measure, um, you know, measurement is like fraught on, on kind of many ways, but I think there are ways to kind of measure like the number of times you led, you facilitated like a learning group, um, attended, um, ERG meeting, um, you know, there, there's these different ways to just like surface this stuff that none of them are perfect. Um, but, but I do think fighting the idea of non-measurability and kind of pushing to have something, because I, I think it's not that you want to say like, oh, you went to, you facilitated three meetings for this, you know, management learning circle and you facilitated four, but, but you will see someone who is like, oh, you facilitated like literally 45 of the of the 50 meetings last year and you facilitated like one and so it's not like the small differences but you'll see people who are just doing extraordinary things that could be easy to kind of miss if you're not looking for it sure and and you know it's incumbent upon every manager to kind of release the scheduling mandates to allow for that kind of thing, because, you know, particularly in an engineering context, you know, you can very, very easily overwhelm someone's schedule where they just simply would never have the ability to do something like that. I think that, I think that's, I think that's right. And that, that kind of segues a little bit back to like just picking up a, a thread from a little bit earlier on this, like project selection, like how do you make people, how do you make sure people have access to these opportunities? And so it, it's definitely true that if you don't create time for people to get access to like these important projects um they won't have time so how do you create buffer for it um and and so i think as a as a good manager creating that space so that you can have people um, apply for important projects and if you select them using some sort of like rubric um then helping them free up space flipping it a little bit like sometimes like you um as a leader or manager are in fact the most experienced leader um in a situation, like you might have, you know, done more than your manager at a given point. And so I think sometimes we also expect like our managers to like set everything up for us, but it's also like you're like a, a really active participant in your career as well. And so I think sometimes it's like, hey, this is such an important opportunity. I'm just going to free up time to make sure I can do it by doing a worse job of these other things. And I think being deliberate about kind of the level of quality you're going to do in different parts of your job. Um, and negotiating with your manager, either implicitly or explicitly, to kind of create that space um, it, it is also like a core skill to make sure that you're able to focus on um, the work that's either like personally important to you 
um, from like a mission perspective or that you think will be like fulfilling and growing and for I you as well? I think that's part of chapter or uh, section three, right? So I didn't get that far yet, but <laughs> I think you did write extensively about that. So. Yeah, that, that, uh, there, there are, <laughs> yes, that, that, that's correct. <laughs> section three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I at least read my outline, but well, uh, okay. I know you, you need to wrap and, you know, we could do this all day cause I'm a huge nerd, but what have I not asked? You know, like, what do you want people to know about, about this work? Cause I, I think it's important in the time that I've spent with it already. And I'd like people to meaningfully make the time to, to read what you put together. So, you know, what, what did I not ask that you want everybody to know? I really believe that management is an ethical profession and that, um, the, the way to be an ethical practitioner of the profession is by being extremely deliberate and intentional. And importantly, that this doesn't make you a worse or slower or less efficient manager. It doesn't make your teams less efficient. I found that this makes teams like gel. I found it makes teams like joyous. And I found that it, like it works, like that the teams do good work. And so I think there's like so often these like false like kind of dichotomies of, or false trade-offs where if you, you know, focus on culture or if you focus on, you know, gelling teams like it's kind of a waste um but it's just not true like you can have a team that's doing amazing work um rested um excited um likes each other um and can be like really high performing and i just think that should be the the thing we're all working towards not um not making this trade-off between like productivity and kind of the the, the feeling the experience of being on i love that I'm glad I let you wrap it up because that's far better than what I was thinking. So, <laughs> Well, this is so cool. When is the book out? It's like this week, right? Yeah, it's um, it's out in five days on the okay. on the 28th. 28th of May, 2019. And everybody can get it on all their favorite apps, bookstores, whatever. I will tell, and we'll sell the buyer. I'm not typically a, a paper book person anymore, but uh, Will has a lot of, of really cool diagrams and uh, different colored sheets and stuff in there. So this this might be one that, that you're going to keep on, you know, on your bookshelf. So uh, encourage all the leadership and management and uh, engineering folks out there to, to grab a copy. Will, it's been so cool to have you on and uh, I hope we get to do round two after you're uh, a famous author. Yeah, uh, I, I hope so too, um, even, even if I'm not a famous author. Um, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.